I'd like for you to turn back into the book of Philippians. Uh, we started last week in a hymn that uh, has, was sung by the early church. Maybe Paul wrote this hymn or he copied this hymn and uh, scholars and students of the Bible indicate that this hymn is a marvelous uh, testimony to the Lord God, a marvelous testimony to Jesus. And it begins in verse 6, and we looked at verses 6 through 8, which referred to Jesus in his mind and the attitude that we are called to have. But the rest of the hymn in verses 9 through 11 talk about the mind of God and the attitude of God um, over against or uh, in reference to what Jesus did in his humility. We remember that Paul seems to be very concerned about the humility in the church, that there seems to be some tension and friction between a couple of the church members. You can look at chapter 4, verse 2. And there's some tension about whether or not Paul being in prison, because he is in prison, is there for a legitimate reason, or Paul himself got him there for no good reason. And it looks bad, uh, apparently, in some of the members of the Philippian church about Paul being in prison. And it looks bad on them, and they're wondering why he's there and uh, the purpose of his stay in prison. But Paul is trying to remind them that Jesus Christ himself suffered on the cross. And if Jesus did, then why not we? And he's there for appropriate reason because he appealed to Caesar when the uh, Jewish people arrested Paul in the temple and Paul was trying to share Christ the way uh, with the people there in Jerusalem. And he was trying to share with them what Jesus did on the cross. And he's got a great heart for the church at Philippi, where he went to minister, if you remember, uh, Lydia down by the riverside and her families and friends coming to know Christ, and then Paul and being thrown in prison, and then the earthquake, and it broke down the prison doors and all the chains fell off, but none of the prisoners left, and the Philippian jailer and, and his household, and maybe even many of the the convicts that were in the prison came to know Christ, and that was the beginning of the Philippian church. And now Paul is writing to them, and he wants them to understand a very, very serious and earth-shattering phenomenal fact. And uh, that's an important thing for us today to, to do. In fact, for every church, especially in the times we live and in the world around us, there is a fact that we sometimes forget. And sometimes we don't understand its depth and its importance and actually the impact that it has on the entire creation and the entire world. And this is in this hymn, and it's a result of Paul saying that because Jesus was humble and because he went to the cross, God has done something, and God will not undo this. And this thing has an impact for all time and eternity. And so we're going to look this morning at the mind of God and see if we can ponder God's awesome and great love for us and the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross and his love for us and what that means for our everyday life as we live it in these days and times 
whatever we find ourselves in, whatever circumstance we find ourselves in, whatever may come our way, this is something we can hold dear to our heart and take comfort in that God has done this. So I'm going to share this with you. Let's uh, do the whole hymn beginning in verse 6 and then we'll end in verse 11. So we get the context of what's happening here. Actually, in verse 5, Paul says, take the same attitude or adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, that is Jesus, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited or kept. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even to the death, even to death on a cross. Now that's the first part. We did that last Sunday. Verse 9, therefore, or for this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And may God bless the reading of his word. You may not have recognized or thought about it when you heard people say that every name will uh, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that it came from a hymn. It came from a worship experience, an instrument of worship that the church at Philippi were singing or Paul gave them to sing. It perhaps was sung in all the other early Christian churches and it codified our understanding and their understanding about the nature of Jesus and the purpose of Jesus in this way that God did something specifically because of Jesus' humility. God did something specifically because of the obedience of Jesus showing his humbleness and his willingness to empty himself from his divinity and being with God to take on that form of a slave and a servant and to die on the cross for our sins. Because Jesus is obedient to the cross, God did something. And we want to look at what he did here and understand the impact of that and the meaning for us. The meaning for us. So number one, we want to look at the nature of the exaltation in verse 9. We want to kind of flesh out this, uh, this idea of what God is doing here in the nature of the exaltation. Paul said very strongly, for this reason or therefore. It's not... The implication of the translators, it's clear in the text that Paul says, therefore. Now, in order to say, therefore, you have to have something to come before the therefore. And what comes before the therefore is the expedient or the cause or the reason for the therefore. And you get the one connecting to another. God didn't just exalt Christ because he was a nice guy, that he wanted to do something for Jesus, or that Jesus was, in a way, his son. He did it because of Jesus' faith, willingness, and obedient to perform the will of God. So Paul wants us to know 
This is not nepotism on the part of God, giving God the Son all the credit and everything else. That Jesus, because of his obedience, not that he wanted to earn it, and he wasn't doing so that God doing it so that God would give it to him. He was just downright, flat out obedient because he loved his father. And he did it, and God then resulted or responded by exalting him. I want us to understand that because we do not serve Christ, or we should not serve Christ, for what Christ can do for us. Sometimes we think of our faith as punching the right buttons in the vending machine so God, the one who puts all the stuff in there, will give us all the goodies. That we serve Jesus for what Jesus will give us. We follow God for what we get, and we think Christians ought to get all the possessions, all the good times, all the wonderful, glorious things, so that everybody will like us and we'll be the envy of the world. Well, Paul just said Jesus suffered. And he did. He died on the cross. He suffered great scourging and pain. And he was God himself. At any moment of time, he called, could have called all the, all the inhabitants of heaven to come and take him off that cross. But he didn't. He did it willingly and obediently because he loved God the Father. Christians need to serve God through Jesus Christ because we love them. We love God. We love Jesus, our Lord and Savior. And it's not for how many stars we'll get in our crown, how many places we'll sit up to the front in the auditorium when we praise Jesus. It's just simply because we love him. And we need to recognize that Jesus did this out of obedience, and we need to do it. Not expecting God, not arguing that God owns, owes us something, he owes us, period. He doesn't owe us anything. But in loving him and obeying him, we're going to find out that he's going to also follow, I think, in helping Christians to live for all that matters for time and eternity. So we've got to understand that our faith is not a faith of works. We don't earn it. We don't get stuff because we do it. I mean, there was a great cartoon once I saw where there was this huge line outside of heaven, the pearly gates, and up in the front of the line, I probably told you this one before, there went up a great huzzah and hurrah. Something was happening up there at the front of the, of the line getting into the pearly gates, and eventually the word came back, and the word was, he's not counting Wednesday nights. Okay, you've got to be a good old-time Baptist to understand that joke. You know, we go to church thinking some angel up there is checkmarking us off. And that some angel is, is assigned to watch everything we do and check us off when we do the right kinds of things. And we only please God by doing the right kinds of things. We please God by loving him unconditionally and serving him, not because of what he gives to us, but because of who he is and what he did for us in giving Jesus on the cross. We need to remember that. But Paul said here, therefore, therefore, for this reason, God did something for Jesus. It tells us in this text that God highly exalted him. Now that word exalt, highly exalted, means he exalted him above every other thing. There is no one higher than, than Jesus except for God. 
So what he's saying here about this exaltation means to raise to a high point of honor, to the loftiest height, and the phrase or preposition used is over everything else. There is no one equal to Jesus except God and God is higher, but Jesus exalted over everything else. Now stop for a minute and say, hey, Paul's in prison. What's he doing in prison? He's in prison because he refuses to call Caesar Lord. He refuses to say there's any God that is above God or above Jesus. He's saying that every tongue will confess. Every tongue who confesses that Jesus is Lord will be saved. In Romans uh, chapter 10 verse 9, Jesus says, um, Paul says that. That if you want to be saved, confess that Jesus is Lord. Now, what does that mean to say Jesus is Lord? Well, we're going to get to that in a minute. But the deal is that where Jesus was lowly and a slave and died a slave's death down here on that cross, God raised him above every single thing. That word exalted means not only did he raise him from the dead, but he ascended into heaven and he is above every single thing. God highly exalted him because he was obedient, because he was faithful. And then God gave him the name. Now, some of your versions might say a name, but it's not a name. It has the definite article. God gave him the name. Now, there's an interesting thing here because what is the name that God gave him? Is the name Jesus? Well, Jesus may have been used in, in other, for other kids, and even today there are some people who name their children Jesus or Jesus. And is it the name Jesus that's highly exalted, or is it the name that he's going to give Jesus that's going to identify him as that highly exalted person? We'll have to think about that for just a minute. But we're told here that God gave him the name that is above every name. There is no name that is higher than the name God gives to Jesus. And we're going to figure out what that is, or Jesus. Now, today, if we mention the name Jesus, we would argue that is the name above every name. And we sing that name, and we talk about that name, and we honor that name, and we glorify that name, at least we ought to, because there are a lot of people who defile that name, and use it as a cuss word. I was in the store a couple days ago, actually yesterday, and this one lady let out with this, Jesus Christ, and she did it in a way that wasn't honoring the Lord. We need to honor the name of Jesus, understand what that name means, because God gave him that name that is above every name. At the name of Jesus, all these things are going to take place, and these things are going to happen that Paul is saying, remember, he's in prison, he's in a Roman prison, and the highest name of all names in Rome is Caesar. Remember that? And, G and Paul didn't want to call, and the Christians died because they refused to call Caesar Lord. So we look here in verse 9 and we realize that the nature of the exaltation indicates that Jesus has power. Jesus in Matthew 28, 18 said, all authority, all dominion, all power is given unto me. See, he's made king. 
Jesus is king is the testimony of the VBS that we just had. What does it mean to say Jesus is king? We don't have a kingship here in the country. We're Americans. We fought to get rid of King George. But to have a king would mean that we would be obedient to that king, servant to that king. We'd have to raise that king and, and, and do what that king said. But Jesus is king, and Jesus has all power. He has the position of being the king of the world, the king of God's kingdom, the ruler of God's kingdom. He, he came down into Jerusalem in the triumphal entry and was lauded as a king. Everything focuses here on this culture of having a king or the culture of having an emperor like Caesar. And what Paul's effectively saying is that this name that God is giving to Jesus and highly exalting him is putting him in the place far above Caesar, far above any king, far above any ruler and any emperor, that that name is the name that is given to Jesus Christ and him alone. Um, I want to find Acts. Let's see here. Okay. In Acts chapter 2, and we have verse um, 23, but um, fellow Israelites, verse 22, is as Peter is saying, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you use lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. God raised him up, ending the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. This, this is God's son. Look at, look at verse 33. Uh, God, verse 32, God has raised this Jesus we are all witness of this. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. He's talking about the Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit. These are the promises that God said he would give us another paraclete after Jesus was exalted into heaven. So the nature of the, of the exaltation is beyond what we can conceive of as, as democratic Americans thinking we vote our leaders in. There's no vote here. God made Jesus Lord, and we must, we must serve him as Lord. Secondly, we want to talk about the purpose of the exaltation. That's number two, verses uh, 10 through 11. And Paul goes on to explain this exaltation and how this exaltation is going to be worked out in terms of what is taking place uh, or will take place in time and eternity. So he starts off by saying that after he's given the name of, of above every name, that at the name, and again this phrase, so that, 
um, is a clear indication in the text that, in order that or so that, in the name of Jesus, uh, or by the name of Jesus, or at the name of Jesus, whenever the name of Jesus is mentioned, or the name that's given to him, every knee will bend itself, bow, uh, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. So this is important because it speaks about a kingly culture. Now, we don't think of this. Um, we go and we call our leaders honored and respectful names and things of that nature. And we have usually decorum when a judge comes out of his chambers and begins to go to the bench. Everybody rises in respect. Um, in the uh, synagogue school, we wore our yarmulkes to give respect to God as we went in to study all about him. We might respect local authorities and so forth and so on, but we don't quite understand this idea of a kingly culture and what Paul is trying to say, what happened in those days, particularly even in the Roman Empire for the Caesars, and that is when the king came in or the Caesar came in, everybody fell flat on their face forward or bend themselves in honor and respect. They didn't look him in the eyes. It was a respect that they gave him that indicated their rank as subordinate, as lower, as on the bottom chain of the authority structure. And even the greatest prince would have to bow in front of the emperor, the king. And so what Paul is saying that at the name of Jesus, every, every knee on earth will bow. Every knee under the earth, every knee in heaven will bow, bend itself, prostrate yourself, kind of, or bend yourself. Uh, make sure that you show service, that you serve, you show deference, that you show your position underneath the king. And so this image of Jesus coming into the court because his name is announced, right, is having all of the uh, people in the courtroom bend in obedience and service to that king. Now, what's interesting about this bending and this serving is that the king is being recognized. The king is being introduced and the king is being recognized. Nobody bows to somebody else lower than them or even equal to them, but they bow to the highest level of authority, and that authority is Jesus Christ, and they bow to him. Now, Paul adds here, or this hymn adds there, a point that explains what this means. This isn't just Jesus, the king of a petty nation, of an empire that's small or big, it doesn't matter. What the hymn tells us is that this is a name that is, will be honored and revered in the entire creation. So that Paul has, as the hymn says, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. And three places he mentions, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. In heaven, on earth and under the earth. Now, I don't know for certain, but I have a figure uh, that when 
the hymn says that every knee in heaven will bow. I think that may mean all the heavenly beings, all the angelic beings, all the beings that are created that serve God. Well, they're pretty big guys, but they're going to bow as well in honor to Jesus. So that his name is exalted above their names, his position is above their position, and they must respect and understand that this God, Jesus, who came to earth as a man and died on the cross, is above them, and they must bow their knees. They must respect him, acquiesce to him, and understand without a shadow of a doubt that he is king. Alone he is king. Every knee in heaven. Now he goes on to say on earth, and he's getting to the totality of the picture of where this name will be recognized as highly exalted. He says the earth, and, and that I think means you and me, all of the people on the earth, all the created beings that God has made, even the animals, I would say, and the people will have to recognize that Jesus is the king. And it's not that, that he's just the king of a petty kingdom. He's king of all. He's king of all in the heavens, and he's king of all on the earth. And then the hymn goes and says, under the earth. Now, we can take that in two different ways. One way is we can take it as those who are dead, maybe dead and buried, that the dead would even have to admit that Christ Jesus is king. But it's also possible because in the culture of the ancient Near East to think of there's heavenly beings up here and then there's mankind and people here. And then down below are the, is the dominion of, of demons and certain gods like the god of death and, and we would say Satan and all of his minions that they will bow the knee to Jesus too. So that means that the entirety of everything that ever has been created will recognize the position of Jesus as king. Because he's not king over a little nation. He's not king over just one group of people. He's king over everything. He's king over everything. And that's seriously important for us in a number of ways. But one primarily is that we fret and fume and fuss over how bad things are today and how problematic stuff is. And we think the world's going to end because somebody over here does this or somebody does that and everything is going to collapse and, and everything and we're just nervous Nellies and, and, and worriers and fear mongers and, and we listen to people and they're literally going around and saying if you don't vote this way or you don't act this way or you don't do that, everything's going to be terrible and, 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 and just, just fall apart. And the issue is, well... Is Jesus still on the throne? Well, if he is, then he's not going to let us be destroyed or taken or anybody allow things to do anything to us because no one can take us out of his hand. And he's, he's exalted above any other person, every other thing. He is the king and we serve him. I used to call my mother up from time to time. I still do, but I mean, I'd call her up and I'd say, 
oh, mom, I'm struggling with this, I'm struggling with that, and this is that, and this is that. And she'd say, Steve, I want to ask you a question. I said, what is it? Is Jesus still on the throne? I'd say, well, yeah, mom, but, you know, he says, no, no, Steve, is Jesus still on the throne? All the things that we face are not important at times for time and eternity. What matters is our relationship to God and our trust in Him. The world can go to you know where in a handbasket, but we still have Jesus and He's King. And we serve Him. And He's going to take care of us. This is the important thing I wanted us to understand. We get woefully upset about what things are in our life and the circumstances in our life, but we have never lost Jesus. And He will take care of us. And we can exalt him and honor him and glorify him and praise him. And we can trust in him. What is it the kids said at VBS? Trust in Jesus. Because he's still the king. He's still on the throne. He is above everything that's in heaven, everything that's on earth, and everything that's under earth. They will all bow the knee. They will all give respect to him. They will all do his bidding and follow his commands. When God sends Jesus back again at the second coming and he establishes his kingdom upon earth, there will be no one, absolutely positively no one, who can do anything that Jesus isn't commanding, that Jesus isn't directing, that Jesus isn't requiring, because every single thing will be subservient to him and his kingship. And we can trust in him. So what? We get hurt. Well, Jesus will vindicate us when it's time. So what if we don't get this and we're envious of other people? It doesn't matter. We have golden possessions and things that are worth more than anything this world can offer. We have happiness and joy and soul satisfaction in Jesus Christ like nothing in this world could ever possibly offer us. We can search after things and follow after things and all they do is bind us and enslave us to that search and to their power. But Jesus Christ breaks those bonds of servitude and gives us true love and satisfaction in our hearts when we know that we are serving him and seeking him. Because at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Every person on, in heaven and earth and under the earth will bow. And then we find out, secondly, that it's not just that we bow, but there is an attitude of confession that comes when we recognize that he is the king. In verse 11 it says, And every tongue will confess. Now this isn't a major confession of all the people, yeah, all the people can get together and say, yeah. The word has the concept of someone individually will have to confess. They will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. They will have to say themselves, admit themselves, every tongue and every language will have to admit that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now this word Lord is interesting. Maybe it's the word that the name that, that God has given to Jesus. Some scholars suggest that, that at the name that in verse 9 that God gave him a name that is above every name and that name means Lord. That's the name Lord. Not just Jesus but Lord. 
so that they know that Jesus equals Lord, Lord equals Jesus. Nobody else can be Lord. Jesus is the only one who can be Lord. And at that name, everyone will confess that Jesus is Lord. Not Caesar, not someone else, but Jesus is Lord. And everyone will confess that. Everyone will admit to that. Everyone will, will have to recognize that he is Lord. Those who, who denied it, those who dishonored it, those who take it in vain will have to turn around and say, yep, you're right, Jesus is Lord. And the confession will have to come. They will have to do that and confess that he is Lord. Themselves, personally, that Jesus is Lord. Now the interesting thing about this word Lord is that the Septuagint uses this term when uh, it, it translates God's personal name. We talked about that in synagogue school, his four letters of his name. The Greek translation uses the word kurios, which is Lord, and Caesar used the name kurios. And what Paul is saying, there is no emperor, there is no king, there is only the Lord Jesus Christ. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. One day this will happen. And I think this is the important thing for us to understand. We don't serve a God who is ineffective and, and sometimes does good things and sometimes doesn't and, and leaves us adrift in a sea of all kinds of problems and difficulties. We don't serve a God who is unable to act or he can't do things in our lives. He can't be concerned with all the things that we do and we... We, we just think he doesn't care. He's sitting up there watching from a distance. We serve a king who is Jesus, who lovingly and willingly died on the cross for our sins so that he could be part of our lives every day. And we don't have to worry about what happens in the world because we have Jesus. We know that what matters for time and eternity is taken care of when we know Christ Jesus is Lord and Savior. And I tell you what, that, that puts some things into perspective. When you're a teenager, everything is a crisis, right? You know, your, your, your favorite shirt didn't get washed or it's in the dryer. And, the, and you know, and it's, it's going to end my life if I don't have this or do that. We're, the life isn't like that with Jesus Christ because what matters for time and eternity is his love for us and our service to him. And we can give him glory no matter what situation we find ourselves in. We can give him glory no matter what circumstance might happen to us. We can give him glory because he's teaching us trust and the ability to look to him and lean on him and not on our own understanding. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Paul, the, the, the hymn doesn't stop there. The hymn gives us the final point when it says that the reason why every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, because it will be done for the glory, to the glory of God the Father. See, Paul brings us right back, or this hymn brings us right back to the point of understanding that it is God who gave Jesus this name because Jesus was obedient, and God the Father gets glory when we confess that Jesus is Lord. 
Why does he get glory? Because we confess that Jesus is Lord. Because God shows us his love and his care for us. Not only did he create us in his own image, but when we sinned against him, he gave us the individual who would save us. He would give us the means whereby we would be forgiven. The means whereby we would be restored and reconciled to God back into his family through his son, Jesus Christ. And God did this so that Jesus might be that ransom for us. And that is why we praise God. That is why we give him glory. That is why we give him honor because God could have, well, as he led the children of Israel through the wilderness and told Moses he could just start all over with Moses and get rid of all those 12 tribes of Israel. But he didn't. He loved us and he gave us his son Jesus to pay the penalty for our sins, to bring us into the family. And for that, we give him glory. And for that, the world will give him glory because he is a caring God, a loving God. And he has given his son Jesus to be Lord, to be king over everything. And the psalm or the song here ends with this statement of glory to God the Father. We give God the Father glory when we live in such a way that we recognize this fact. That in the end, if you want to go to the book of Revelation and look at it, we win. That Jesus wins. In the end, all of us, every single one of us, will bow our knee to Jesus Christ. Now what's interesting about this hymn is I think that it has an Old Testament antecedent to it. And if we get back to this idea of God the Father being glorified, we need to understand that in the God's will and God's scheme of things, he intended this all along for Jesus to die on the cross. And Jesus was obedient to this. And because of this, God is going to get the glory and honor. The reason why I think this, if you, if you ever take a look in, into a concordance and try and find out where it talks about knee and tongue, knee bowing and tongue confessing, you'll find in Isaiah chapter 45, uh, verse 23 in particular, but he's, in, if you go back to verse 20, this is, this is a statement of God saying, now we could argue that Isaiah here is predicting, prophesying that this is going to happen. And this is what he says here, God is speaking um, you know, and this is what he's saying here in verse 20. Come together, come gather together and approach you fugitives of the nations. Those who carry their wooden idols and pray to a God who cannot save have, and have no knowledge. So these chastising these people who are serving all kinds of these idols. Speak up and present your case. Yes, let them consult each other. Who predicted this long ago? Who announced it from ancient times? Was it not I, the Lord? There is no other God but me, a righteous God and Savior. There is no one except me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, truth has gone out from my mouth, a word that will not be revoked. Now listen to what the word is. Every knee will bow to me and every tongue will, will swear 
allegiance. Now this, I think, is the basis of the hymn. That ultimately, when we say that Jesus is Lord, and we bow our knee, and we confess that he is Lord, we're swearing allegiance to God the Father as well. God gets the glory because God did this to do what? So that we will turn to him. That he's the God, the righteous God and Savior. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth because he's God. Don't look for God. Don't look for happiness. Don't look for peace in things that are not God. Don't go out there and look for God in the world or the possessions of the world or the things the world makes or the things that the world says is good and wonderful. Look to God. Look to him through Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins because he is the one who brings us to the Father. Did Jesus not say that I am the way, the truth, and the life? No man cometh unto the Father but by me. God has exalted Jesus. And at the name of Jesus, as Lord, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is our Savior and our Lord. This is what we need to stand for. And sometimes we forget and we get, oh no, oh no. Glory in the fact that we have this kind of Savior. Glory in the fact that we have this kind of God. We're going to have a hymn of invitation, hymn number two, holy, holy, holy. And we want you to respond to give God glory and recognize that what Jesus did on the cross shows God's ultimate love and concern for us. And for that, we can praise him and give him honor. Maybe you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and we want you to come and receive him and, and let us show you through the word of God what it means to come to know him. Maybe you're looking for a church, a place to serve as we receive church members if God leads you to join us together to tell the whole world, tell all of Liberty and all of Kansas City that Jesus is Lord. You come and be with us. Whatever God is leading you to do, you come as we sing this song, Holy, Holy, Holy. <laughs>